0: The following audio is from Christian Heritage Church. More information about Christian Heritage Church is available at chctoday.com. Thank you very much. It's a little weird for me to say Pastor Steve or Pastor Dow, so if you guys are okay, I'll just call him dad for the rest of the day. Is that all right? I got permission? Got permission. Well, I need to say thank you to my dad and to Yvonne and to my church for giving me a Sunday off so that I'm able to come and, and talk with you guys for a little bit and And bring the message of Christ this morning uh, here in Tallahassee, Florida. I'm not sure why you people live in Tallahassee, Florida. I think it was like 120% humidity this morning when I got up. (laughs) I went up and I went for a run and it ended up being a swim. I'm not sure what happened. (laughs) Don't know what happened. This morning what I want to talk to you is is about approaching Jesus. It's about having the right approach as we come to Jesus and we talk to him and we look at him and we ask him to smile upon us one more time. We're going to look this morning in in Luke chapter 23 and and if you have been in Christianity for very long or if you've spent much time studying the Bible, you would know that Luke 23 contains the crucifixion narrative, the, the portion of our Bible where Jesus dies for our sins But in this microcosm of Luke chapter 23, what you're going to see is that there are different approaches to Jesus. There are different approaches to who he is and what he has done. You know, I I think about it this way, that, that everywhere I go and everywhere I travel, it feels like there is a different way to greet people. How I approach people is completely different. Um, it, it wasn't too long ago that I was on staff at my church there in Fort Worth And I would walk in the sanctuary and someone would call me Philip Or they would call me Pastor Philip And they'd say, good to see you this morning And I'd say, good to see you too And then we'd handshake And then there came a lady who decided she wanted to hug So I would stick out my hand And all of a sudden she would just grab me around the neck And start bear hugging me I'm like, what's, what's wrong? We approach people with handshakes We don't approach people with hugs What's going on with you? I've been in other cultures where people approach you and they they walk up and they kiss you right on the cheek. Anyone ever had that happen to them before? Yeah, it's a little bit awkward, isn't it? It's a problem, especially when it's a guy that walks up and kisses you on the cheek. You want to? Hey, buddy, I'm not about that life. You better back up. Better back up. Am I supposed to give eye contact? Am I supposed to? Am I supposed to shake your hand? Am I supposed to hug you? What are the rules of approaching people in our culture? Just this week, Michelle and I, we were driving from Fort Worth. We we chose to drive overnight so that our boys could sleep in our car. We were driving overnight, and, and we got in the middle of Louisiana, and I made the decision, you know what? Michelle had never seen New Orleans before, so I decided we're going to detour down, and we're going to go see New Orleans. So we pulled into New Orleans at about, I think it was about 5.30, 6 in the morning. I knew Cafe Du Monde was open. I wanted some beignets. So I pulled in, we, we walked in, and now granted, we had left our house at about 9 o'clock the night before. And we had both worked all day. We got in our car, I put my OU baseball hat on, I think we both had t-shirts on. We weren't looking the prettiest we'd ever looked in our lives. We pulled into Cafe Dumont at about 6 in the morning, and we walked inside, and we sat down, and I'm dreary-eyed and trying to just stay awake, but I knew I wanted some sugar. So we sit down at the table, and this guy beside me can't help but pipe up, and he says, Boomer Sooner! And I looked at him, and I said, boom, I forgot, I'm in Florida. Boomer Sooner is the way that you greet someone who's from Oklahoma, who's wearing OU gear. So he says, Boomer Sooner. I looked at him and I said, what? He said, Boomer Sooner. I said, oh yeah, Boomer Sooner, Boomer Sooner. Yeah, all that stuff, all that. So he greeted me with with just yelling at me at six in the morning in the middle of of New Orleans at a cafe that I hardly ever go to. And I started thinking about it and I knew what I was going to be preaching on today and this whole idea of greeting people, of approaching people. It kind of fed into this idea of how do we approach Jesus? What is the correct approach? What is the way that I am to approach Jesus? If you turn with me to Luke chapter 23, we're going to go verse, uh, verses 35 through 43, but the very first one we're going to do is verse 35. We're just going to do one verse. You find it in the NIV version of the Bible is what I'm reading from this morning. Verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, "He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah." The chosen one. We see that the way that the Sanhedrin or the way that the the Jews of the day approached Jesus was with absolute animosity. They approached him with anger. They approached him uh, uh, cursing him and saying, if he's so great, if he is God's Messiah, let him step down off the cross himself. They were angry at the idea of who Jesus was and what he claimed to be. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that this is especially strange because Jesus throughout his entire ministry told people that he came for the Jews. He told them over and over again, I came so that the Jews may hear the rest of the story so that they may understand who God is and what God has done so that they may may know that all of the Old Testament, all of those books and all those stories and all those teachings, all of that was so that I could come and be the Messiah. And when he came to be the Messiah, guess what they did to him? They hung him on a cross. They killed him. They said, we don't want a Messiah. At least we don't want your kind of Messiah. They were angry. Just a week earlier, just a week earlier before Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus had come into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. And in that day, they celebrated him. Why did they celebrate him? Because they thought that he was coming to overthrow Rome. They thought that he was coming to to kill Pilate the king and to overthrow Herod and to enforce a true Jewish kingdom. They're in Jerusalem. A week later, they're chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's hung on the cross, and we see that now they stand below the cross, and they say, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's chosen one, the Messiah. They had anger in their hearts. They were bitter in their hearts. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit the model of who who they thought he was supposed to be. They thought that Jesus was supposed to come into the kingdom of Jerusalem and he was supposed to put a crown on his head and he was supposed to rule by the sword and he was supposed to kill people. But you know what Jesus came to do instead? He came to save. He came to seek the lost sheep. He came to get the one who couldn't save himself. He came to find that which was lost. Luke tells us the story of a lost coin. Jesus came for the lost coin. He tells us the story of a lost son. Jesus came for the lost son. Jesus came for that which was lost, that which was alone, and that which needed hope. But the Jews of the day, they were, they had animosity in their heart. They had anger in their heart. They thought that they were entitled to receive something from Jesus. See, they somehow got it in their minds that that God is there to serve man instead of man being here to serve God. And I think that there are some in our society who have the exact same entitlement mentality. There's those of us that say that God is here to serve me, not me here to serve Him. In fact, if, if I were to take a story, and let me tell you just a brief story. I read the story, it was probably a few months ago. A story of a young girl, I don't remember what state she was in, but it was a young girl who was suing her parents. Because her parents had, had, I believe, told her she couldn't date her boyfriend. I don't remember what the exact circumstances were, but she was suing her parents because they told her she couldn't do a certain thing. So she moved out and she wanted to keep her car and she wanted to keep going to private school and she wanted to keep all the luxuries of her parents, but she didn't want the discipline of her parents. And as I read that article, I thought about how many times we as Christians live that way with God. We live our lives saying, God owes me everything. I am the center of the universe, instead of realizing that God is the center of the universe. That God is the only one that deserves worship. We don't deserve worship. We don't deserve anything except for grace, and that's what he extends to us. We don't deserve life even, yet he gives it to us. See, when we get in our minds that people are the ones who God is to serve instead of us serving God, we completely miss the message. We miss the mark. It's as if we draw back our bows and we're about to hit the center of our target. And instead of hitting the center of the target, we hit 40 feet away. Why? Because we forgot that Jesus is the reason. And we started focusing on something else and we started doing other things and we started living our lives the way that we want to live our lives. And we end up like the Jews saying, give, 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 give. God, do it the way that I want it to be done. And if you don't do it the way that I want it to be done, then you're not really God. See, it's as if we take a box and we put God inside of the box and anything that doesn't fit inside of our box, well, surely that can't be God. Surely God is not good if he doesn't fit inside my box. And the problem is that when we begin to define God, we begin to stumble with the hard things in life. We begin to stumble with why is there sickness in our world? Why are there hard times in our world? Why is there death in our world? And we know that if we read Genesis, we know that it's because Adam and Eve introduced sin and we have a sin nature. But we struggle with it because we say, God, if you're good and if you're supposed to do what I want you to do, and if you fit in my box and there would be no death, there would be no sickness, there would be no troubles, I would have all the money I want to have, the doctor would always say I'm 100% perfect, the doctor would never tell me to lose 20 pounds because look at me, I'm practically an Adonis up here. The doctor would never do that to me because God, you're supposed to be good. See, that's us cramming God into a box, and when He doesn't fit in the box, we breed animosity inside of our own hearts. We breed anger in our own hearts because He's not doing what I said He's supposed to do. Approaching God with animosity leads to hatred, it re- leads to wrong belief. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if we are trying to force God to match our definitions of who He is, we are guilty of idolatry, of idol worship. See, if God can be put into a box, then he isn't really God. If I can tell God who he's supposed to be, then he's not a God that's worth worshiping. That's why I love God, because he's bigger, he's greater, he's more powerful. He's able to take people that are broken and abused and beaten up, and he's able to take them and restore them to life. See, it has nothing to do with my history. It has everything to do with what God sees in my future, what Christ saw on the cross that day. See, I don't think some of you guys are getting this this morning. What I'm telling you this morning is that if we live our lives with the mindset that we define God, then really all we have done is condemned ourselves to a life without God. That's all we've done. We've turned our back on God when we say that we are going to define Him. That's exactly where the Jews found themselves at. They found themselves with anger, with animosity, as they looked to see who God was. See, when we live our lives and we act as if God serves us, then we miss the mark of us serving God. But see, that's not the only problem that we find in Luke chapter 23. There were the Jews who approached him with animosity, but then there was another group who approached him in a different way. Verses 36 and through 38 of Luke chapter 23 say this, The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Or, oh, I'm sorry, let's stop right there. Let's stop with, This is the king of the Jews. The next approach we see is how the soldiers approached him, and that was with arrogance. The Jews approached him with animosity, the soldiers approached him with arrogance. See, in the Roman mindset, power was God. Whoever had the biggest army, whoever was really powerful, they were God. If we were to understand the Roman culture of some 2,000 years ago, you would understand that that Romans were really good at a few things. Actually, they were good at a lot of things, but they were really good at a few things. They were really good at building roads. They built roads almost better than almost anyone. In fact, there were roads that were built 2,000 years ago that are still used today. They were excellent at building roads. You know what else they were good at? They were good at fighting wars. The Romans would go in and they would fight a war and they would just destroy the people and whoever they didn't destroy, they would convert to the Roman way and they would make them live as Romans. You know what the other thing they were good at was? They were good at killing people. When they killed someone, they stayed dead. They didn't get back up. So here we see the story of Jesus hanging on the cross, being hung on a Roman cross, and the soldiers who are standing around the feet of the cross know, we're really good at this. We hung him up. He's dead. There's... Nothing left after this. So the Romans begin, the Roman soldiers, they begin hurling insults at him. They're saying, if he's the king of the Jews, then really these Jews have no hope. If this is the best they have that can come against us, how are they ever going to overthrow us? Every day they walk on our roads. Every day they see our soldiers walking around. And every day they have to walk by the crosses where we hang the criminals. The Romans, they had power had arrogance. They had everything in their mind. In fact, Caesar, who was the emperor of Rome, he loved power so much that he would mock anyone that questioned his power. He would hurl insults at him, and he would send his generals in to wipe out entire cities if someone dared insult Caesar's power. Because in Rome, power was God. See, for the Jews, the the approach to God was, God has to do what I want him to do. For the Romans, it was God can be whatever he wants to be, As long as he's the most powerful thing on earth, as long as he enforces that power with death and with destruction and with the sword. The soldiers stood at the foot of the cross that day and they looked up and they mocked him and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. In other words, if you have all this power, step off the cross, buddy, do something about it. I can imagine the the soldiers on that day pulling their sword out and holding their sword up to Jesus and saying, if you're so powerful, step off the cross. If you're so powerful, do something. You think that you're the one who's going to conquer Rome? I dare you to conquer Rome. Look what we've done to you. We've hung you on the cross. You'll never get off that cross until you're dead. So for the Romans, power was God. And they approached Jesus with arrogance. And because they approached him with arrogance, arrogance, they missed who he was. There's a story of a, a man, it's a true story, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lived in the early parts of World War II. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in Germany under under Hitler's regime, and he was known as one of the men who was plotting to kill Hitler. He was a Christian theologian who was plotting to kill Hitler. But while he was plotting to kill him, he was also trying to speak life into the people's lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in The Cost of Discipleship. He said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. I want you to think about that. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. See, I think what many of us would like that, that quote to say is when Christ calls a man, he calls him to live a rainbow and unicorn life with Skittles every morning when you wake up. That you'll never have problems, it's just a smooth glass surface. What Bonhoeffer says is when Christ calls a man, he calls him to die. Meaning we must love Jesus with so much of our being and so much of who we are that we say, God, whatever you ask of me, I will do it. See, in the kingdom of God, the the triangle of power is inverted. Instead of there being a Caesar at the top and everyone is crushed underneath him, instead there is a servant Messiah at the bottom who died for you and for me. When Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Same goes for women, same goes for children. When we are called by God, we must know that we are called not to a life of perfection, but to a life of service and a life of following and a life of everything that God wants to give us. But it's not going to come without storms in our life. See, the promise of God is not that storms will go away. The promise of God is that he'll be with you in the storms. And he'll be with you on the other side of the storms. And he'll be with you under the storms. He'll be with you on top of the storms. And he'll be with you wherever the storm is at. God is there. God is with us. But the Romans didn't understand that. They only understood power. They didn't understand how a king could lay down his life for his people. See, I think that many times we in the Christian church we are guilty of this approach. We're guilty of arrogance. We're guilty of looking at people who don't look like us, don't act like us, don't talk like us and saying they'll never get it. They're too hard to reach. They're in a part of the world that our missionaries have trouble getting into. But let me tell you something. My God has no trouble getting into anywhere. I don't know about your God, but my God has no trouble getting into anywhere. He can go where he wants to go. He can say what he wants to say. He can do what he wants to do. And is able to do it because the power triangle is inverted. When you choose to die for your faith, and not a literal death, I'm not saying that we're all called to be martyrs for Christendom, but when you choose to die for your faith, you say, whatever God calls me to do, I'm going to do it. That means if God calls me to go and reach someone who doesn't look like me, guess what? How fast can I get there? If God calls me to go and talk to people who don't talk like me, guess what? How fast can I learn the language? If God calls me to go somewhere that I don't want to go, I'm still going to go. Why? Because I refuse to approach God with arrogance. We approach God with submission. We approach God with, with, with calmness and with an understanding that He is Jesus. And in order for me to try to be like Jesus, I must be willing to live in an inverted kingdom or sometimes giving up power is the only way to serve God. The Romans of the day, they, they really had trouble with this. They looked at Jesus, they, they had been in Judea the whole time that Jesus was traveling around, and they watched as the Jews castigated Jesus and called him names and hurled, him, hurled insults at him. They said, if he's not even powerful enough to stand up to them, how can he stand up to us, so let's kill him. See, I think what, what you and I miss sometimes is that In our moments of weakness is when God is ready to step up and do something amazing. I heard a man say it this way one time, and I thought it was perfect. It resonates within my soul. He said, when you are down to nothing, God is up to something. When you are down to nothing, God is up to something. When you got empty hands and you say, God, I just can't go any further. That's the moment when you hit your knees and you say, God, where are you calling me to go? What are you calling me to do? Who are you calling me to speak to? When you are down to nothing, God is up to something. But see, we often give up in those times. Because we as Christians, we have, we have tried to keep the power triangle in place. We say, well, the more I learn about God, the more powerful I should be. The more I should get good things in this life. The more everything should be smooth sailing and happy days. But that's not what God promised us. You know, he promised us, he promised us eternal life. He promised us a hope and a future. He promised us a life that no cross can take away. He promised us a life that no punishment can take away. He promised us eternal life. Let's look at the next couple verses, verses 39 through 43, and we'll see the approach we should have when it comes to Jesus. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Verse 40, don't miss this. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we are, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Jews approached Jesus with anger, with animosity. The Romans approached him with arrogance. They said, You're not powerful enough. But a thief hanging on a cross, a man who was condemned to die, approached him the right way, and that's with authenticity. In an authentic voice, he said, We thieves deserve to die. I think this morning there are more of us in this room that would care to acknowledge the fact that we deserve to die, just like the thieves hanging on the cross. In fact, Romans tells us for the wages of sin is death. Now, if you're in here and you're perfect, that's great for you. I'm not preaching to you. You can put in your iPod headphones for the next minute or so. But to everyone else, I don't see any headphones going in, so I think this is for everyone else. For everyone else, I want you to understand this. When Jesus hung on that cross, he hung not for his sins, but for my sins and for your sins. The perfect lamb of God was sacrificed and his blood was spilt so that I may have hope of a future. So I can't approach God with arrogance and say, God, you're not powerful enough. And I can't approach God with animosity and say, God, get inside my box. So the only way that I can approach God is with authenticity. To say, you are God and I am not. You are everything and I am nothing. This conversation between the thieves, I, I, I love the fact that one of them still has the anger that is felt by everyone else around the cross that day, but the other one gets it. He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, notice, he doesn't say, if you come into your kingdom, he believes, he's authentic, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Now catch this, Jesus doesn't tell him, all right, well, let's, let's, quote the roman road together and let's say Psalm 119:11 together and really if you go through our 4 week discipleship class then you'll be ready to come into the kingdom. You know what Jesus tells him? Today you will be with me in paradise. See, I think we as the Christian church we have tried to make salvation into a hurdle that has to be jumped before you can get to Jesus. But the point of the cross is that Jesus knocked down every hurdle He knocked down every barrier. He knocked down every obstacle. He said, if you want life, come and get it. Come and drink the water of life. It's free. It's able. I am paying the cost so that you may know what eternal life means. The thief on that day, he hung there and he asked God in an authentic voice, remember me. Notice the thief didn't sit there and say, Jesus, I didn't do what they said I did. I'm, I'm innocent, God. Just, just save me because I'm innocent. No. He quoted to his other thief and he said, you and I are both guilty of what they've accused us of. But this man is not. So when he says, remember me in paradise, it's not a plea of Jesus, I'm innocent. It's a plea of I'm guilty. But can you still save me? And when we approach Jesus authentically, that's the way we have to approach him. Not hiding our sins and tucking them behind a carpet. But instead boldly holding them out and saying, God, here are the bad things that I have done. Can you fix it? And you know what the promise of the Bible is? That no matter how bad your sin is, no matter how dark the cave is that you are in, God is waiting to save you. He's waiting to rescue you. He's waiting to bring you out to a better place. He's waiting to give you that which we can't buy on our own. Many in this room have spent their entire lives pursuing a way to fill the hole in your heart. You spent your entire life looking for a way to feel happy. Looking for a way to feel fulfilled. And let me tell you something. It's not found at the bottom of the bottle. It's not found at the edge of the needle. It's not found in a dirty magazine that you shouldn't even have. It's only found in Jesus. It's only found in a death that he didn't deserve. It's only found in a resurrection. It's only found in submission. It's found when we turn our lives over to Christ and we say, God, I am a worthless, wretched sinner. Can you do something? And he promises that he will. He promises that he will. The sinner that day admitted to his guilt and he was saved. He was saved from the punishment that he deserved. When I was young, I was, I was probably about, oh, I was probably five or six years old at this time. My dad was pastoring a church in, in Ark City, Kansas, in Ark Kansas City, Kansas. The way this church would go is the kids would go to Sunday school in the morning, then we would load up in a bus or a van, and we would drive over to the parsonage, and that was where we would have children's church at. So every Sunday morning, I would get my little Sunday school papers, and I would jump in the van, and I would go sit in the back of the bus with my friends, and we would ride over to the to the parsonage, and and we'd go to children's church. One Sunday, me and a couple of my friends, we had this bright idea. We decided that it would be fun to tear up our papers and drop them out the back window of the bus. So you can imagine that, I I don't know how many papers you guys get on Sunday morning, but it used to be in the early 90s, we got a lot of papers. I mean, sometimes I felt like I was leaving church with a three-ring binder of stuff. So we're sitting in the back of the bus, and we're driving. It was probably only, I don't know, what, four blocks from the church to the house, We're driving, and me and my friends, we're just enjoying it. We're ripping up our paper, we're throwing it out the back window, having a blast, we're making a trail. No problems. We got to Children's Church, had a great Children's Church. I have no idea what they talked about that day, because I was still giggling about the fact that I had thrown trash out the back of the church van. Got home that afternoon and walked in, and there inside the kitchen of our house was a trash bag. And in that trash bag had all of those little pieces of paper in it. What I didn't know that was that apparently we had too many kids that morning. We didn't all fit in the van. So one of the deacons had decided to drive the other few kids behind us. So he had been watching the entire time as we threw paper out the back of the van. And after he dropped off his kids, he went back and got a trash can and cleaned up the four blocks over to the parsonage. And then he did what every deacon is supposed to do. They told on me to my dad. There are times that I wish that God would give deacons the, the gift of just muteness. Just don't don't just, shh, don't tell on me, please, please. But they did. I walked in the in the kitchen that day, and my dad was sitting there with a trash bag full of of torn up pieces of paper. He says, "Is there anything you'd like to tell me?" I said, "Nope, nope." He said, "Are you sure?" And I said, "Nope, didn't do anything, nothing." He said, did you throw paper out of the back of the bus? I said, no, absolutely not. Not me. Must have been someone else. He said, well, this deacon, they saw you do it. I said, nope, 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 nope. I must look like someone else. They must have put on my clothes. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't me. I denied and denied and denied and denied and denied until finally we got to the point where he said, well, I know it's you and you're going to get a spanking now. He said, I'm not spanking you for throwing the trash out of the bus. I'm spanking you for lying to me. And I thought, oh, no. You mean I could have just told the truth and avoided this entire spanking ordeal? I learned a lesson on that day, and it's a lesson that stuck with me for the rest of my life. When you do something wrong, own up to it. Just say it. Yeah, I did it. I'm terrible. Look how bad I am. And then you throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You say, hey, can you save me? 90% of the time, you're still going to get a spanking. But that blessed 10%. Now, blessed 10%. What I want you guys to get this morning is this. When you approach God with authenticity, when you approach Christ with authenticity, it's not a 10% chance that you'll be saved. It's a 100% guarantee. When we approach Jesus in the right way, not with animosity, not with arrogance, but with authenticity, it's 100% guaranteed that he will welcome us into his kingdom. See, what we are missing in our world is a culture of grace and a culture of mercy. What we're missing is is we think that it's our job to come to church on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and put on a mask and let people see how happy we are in this world. That's what the Jews did. What we think is it's our job to go out into the world and tell them if you'll just be a Christian, then everything will be perfect. God is powerful. That's what the Romans did. The best approach to Jesus, and I would say the only approach to Jesus, is authenticity. It's an authentic acknowledgement of my own sin. It's saying, God, I am not worthy. God, I am not able to do it on my own. Can you do something? Not because I deserve it, but because you chose to pay pay the cost on the cross for me. Authenticity means that we admit our wrongs. Every time. And we seek reconciliation. That doesn't mean we admit our wrongs and we, we say I'm sorry and we cry a little bit at the altar and then tomorrow we go back to what we were doing. What it means is that we admit we're wrong and that we seek God for the discipleship to change the way that we were living. If we live our lives authentically, it means acknowledging we can do nothing to earn God's grace, yet he has done everything to give it to us. He has given us free life. Now it's our job to offer back to Him the right approach. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I thank you for every person who is sitting in this room today. God, I know that there are people in this room who come from a myriad of walks of life. God, people who have journeyed toward you from from high-income places and from low-income places. God, from places that I may never step my foot. But God, you are present in every one of our lives. You have never looked away for a moment. You have never been embarrassed by what you see, but you have constantly offered grace. So God, now this morning, I pray for those in this room that have a hole in their heart, that have a troubled heart. God, they have sought everything else to find pleasure, to find peace, except for seeking you earnestly and with authenticity. God, I pray this morning through the rest of this service that you would reveal yourself in a powerful way to those of us in this room. God, let us not leave this place the same way that we came in, but to let us leave here changed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Christian Heritage Church, located in Tallahassee, Florida. Feel free to give copies of this message to others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Christian Heritage Church, please visit us online at chctoday.com.